These are the sparkling tones of Tchaikovsky's The Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. The first time I experienced the wonder of this story was in third grade, watching a performance of the San Francisco Ballet on a field trip with my elementary school. The magic of this dance has never really left me. It has always reminded me that there is far more to life than what I will ever understand. It stirs a deep, resonant melody within me. Thoughts of stars, the magic of Christmas, and the enigma of just being alive within the universe. Prior to the debut of The Nutcracker in St. Petersburg in 1892, while in France, Tchaikovsky heard the unique musical chimes of a relatively new instrument of his time called the celesta, and immediately desired to incorporate it into his work. It was unlike anything the audiences of that time had ever heard before, and it quickly became a phenomenally popular instrument. For Tchaikovsky, it was a, quote, divinely wonderful sound, end quote, he wished to keep secret until the 1892 performance. The uniqueness of the instrument, its uncommon sound, gives the dance its unique character and sustains not only the existence of the composition, but reveals the rich imagination of the composer himself, much in the same way God's agency sustains and changes creation, reflecting his divine attributes. Celesta is French for heavenly, and like the stars that glimmer above us, the sparkling chimes of the Celesta in Tchaikovsky's dance continue to elicit a childlike wonder within all of us. So cue the dance of the sugar plum fairy chimes as you gaze up into the heavens and wonder. A wooden nutcracker carved in the shape of a soldier coming to life to do battle with a multi-headed mouse king elicits our wonder, awe, and hope. Our imaginations and longings are awakened by the pageantry and beauty of the ballet and of the story itself. Welcome to the dance, your dance. You have a part in defeating the dragonish mouse king and all its rodent headiness. The Nutcracker's timeless heavenly melody continues to captivate us because there is a tad bit of incommensurability between our pragmatic rationality and that of Tchaikovsky's inspiring enigmatic imagination. And yet, we too want to dance. We too wish to sit under the tree and receive the gifts from the mysterious Uncle Drosselmeyer, gifts that will forever silence our adversary and bring us through our trials to our happily ever after ending. All of this, however, pales in comparison to the gifts that Christ gives us. Perhaps you feel like you have nothing. No dancing skills, no rich uncle who possesses otherworldly wisdom and power, no reputation and maybe even no hope. We all experience sorrow in this world from time to time. Yet like the black night of sky is to starlight, so too there is a dark side behind the melodious fairy tale of the Nutcracker. Depression, the demon that darkened the sun at noon, also eclipsed Tchaikovsky's life. It stands to reason, then, if our analogy of Tchaikovsky creating the Nutcracker is something akin to God as the Creator, we must engage His goodness and power in relation to the evils we encounter in this world. The creator of the cosmos in Scripture is known as a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. It is a remarkable fact of the Christian faith that the God who created the universe came down into it in the flesh and suffered and wept with us. 
1596, Sir John Davies wrote a wonderful poem called Orchestra, or a poem of dancing, which includes God's creation of the cosmos. Quote, By his through piercing and digesting power, the turning vault of heaven formed was, whose starry wheels he hath so made to pass, as that their movings do a music frame, and they themselves still dance unto the same. How was this goodly architecture wrought, or by what means were they together brought? They err that say they did occur by chance. Love made them meet in a well-ordered dance. In this episode of Good Heavens, I talk with Christian philosopher Dr. Paul M. Gould about rediscovering beauty, meaning, and purpose, and about the unity and coherence of life in the cosmos. Modern culture, primarily through the modern university, has all but given up on making sense of the world. Materialistic, reductionistic impulses, a penchant for pragmatism, our fragmented and separated specializations, and our general overall fear and tragedy have prevented us from seeing the deeper, more meaningful and glorious truths of life in the universe. But through reason, imagination, and the cultivation of the life of the mind, what Gould has called cultural apologetics, we can help our disenchanted and fragmented culture see how all things in the heavens and on earth hold together in Christ. Despite the sorrow and tragedy of life on earth, there is coherence, there is truth, there is beauty, there is hope yet to be rediscovered. Dr. Paul M. Gould holds a Master's in Philosophy of Religion and Ethics from Talbot School of Theology and a Ph.D. in Philosophy from Purdue University. He is the founder and president of the Two Tasks Institute and a visiting fellow at the Henry Center for Theological Understanding at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. So join Paul and I for a fascinating chat about apologetics, the cosmos, and the possibility of a renewed vision of beauty and truth for our time and for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Good heavens, I am here in the office of Dr. Paul Gould. He is the chief editor of the Story of the Cosmos and somebody that I've been working with for the last, uh, gosh, it's been two years now since we've started on this book project. It's really been amazing. So I'm here with Paul. Finally, we have finally coordinated a podcast, and uh, we are going to get together today to talk a little bit about the Story of the Cosmos and about Paul's uh, recent book, Cultural Apologetics, Renewing the Christian Voice, Conscience, and Imagination in a Disenchanted World. So welcome to Good Heavens, Paul. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be together with you. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing, what, what's your uh, your background a little bit, how you got into apologetics, and um, you are a professionally trained Christian philosopher with a PhD in philosophy, 
and um, have been involved with Christian apologetics now for quite some time. So if you'd give us maybe some background about uh, how you got into apologetics and what you see as being most important for uh, cultural apologetics uh, today. So a little bit of background and then a little bit about your book. Okay, yeah, that's a, an excellent question. Um, let's see, let's start with background. I became a Christian in college through Campus Crusade for Christ. And so um, just jumped right into, you know, was confronted with the gospel. Actually, I can remember when uh, two students shared the gospel with me. I, I remember thinking, you know, two things. Number one, why are these students that look normal so into something that just is so odd, namely God? And then number two, what if they were right? And that, that actually set me on a journey, to, a longer story, but about a year later after wrestling with um, some of the intellectual questions for Christianity, I realized that it was actually just the moral issues that were keeping me from faith. So eventually, through a series of um, events, bent my knee and, and became a Christian uh, about a year, well, right before my sophomore year in college. And then when I graduated from college, because God had done such work in my life as a college student, uh, I had a real heart for, for college students as well and wanted to be used um, to help share about Jesus to them. And so when I got married, my wife and I, who also became a Christian through Crew, we both joined staff with Crew, and we worked as campus ministers. And that was where the story took a, a, a turn that I didn't expect. Um, my undergrad degree was actually in accounting, and so I was a CPA right out of college. I know it's crazy. And my uh, my wife, the first stereotype is we were newly newlyweds, going around in some you know newlywed Bible study, uh, sharing. Each, other, each other's hobbies, she said that my hobby was uh, balancing our checkbook. And so, it, you know, she had never seen somebody actually balance a checkbook. But it took me a while to, to lose that, uh, the bean counter stereotype. But I think I've, I've finally shaken that one. Um, but anyway, so eventually we, we came up, we got married, and then we came on staff with crew, wanting to work with college students. And there, uh, there are three things that I noticed about uh, myself. Number one, I noticed that in my evangelism, or any time I'd want to share with people the gospel, tell them about Jesus, I realized that I always veered toward the intellectual types or those who thought they were intellectuals. And I loved having a conversation about the gospel in the context of ideas. So that's the first thing I noticed. Second thing I noticed was that, you know, this kind of interesting paradox. Truth was on our side, I'd come to believe, as, as a Christian. Yet in the classroom, the students were getting a totally different story. And so I didn't, it just kind of began to raise these questions in my mind. Like, why is there this disconnect between the, the truths that I have found and the kinds of things that are being taught in the classroom? And the third thing that happened was, I call it a beach ball that surfaced in my life, but it's basically a passion for learning. Uh, you know, suddenly for the first time as a bean counter, as a CPA, you know, um, I wanted to know the truth about the world and how do you defend belief in God and the rationality of the faith in God and things like that. And so there, this passion for learning surfaced in my life. Um, but as and the beach ball is the apt metaphor because of all the generalist things that I did. I just didn't have time to pursue these passions. And so I basically shoved those passions under the surface for about three years. Um, but as you can imagine, every time you shove a beach ball under the surface, it comes back up. Same with these, these passions or desires to learn. So would shove them down. Eventually they'd come back up, would shove them down. And finally I'm like, okay, God, what is going on with this desire to learn? And so I began to sort of test the beach ball, let it surface on the water, taught in apologetics class to students, 
um, learn some things about myself that I have abilities to communicate, learn some things about my students that they have needs in the area of apologetics. Um, and so I began this sort of journey and it's a longer story, but, but basically uh, it began with evangelism and then apologetics and then from there theology and philosophy. And next thing you know, a decade later, you know, I'm, I, I have a PhD in philosophy and, and uh, I've found that thing that sort of makes my heart sing, which is teaching and helping the gospel become be seen as plausible and reasonable um, so your second question then was you know why cultural apologetics and what is the importance of a cultural apologetic approach and so I just wrote this book and it just came out but really even though the book just came out it represents the last 20 years of wrestling with really one question it's the same question that I was wrestling with way back as a young campus minister and that was the question how does the gospel get a fair hearing in our culture um, and, and just wrestling with that question over the years. And then as I began to teach as a professor at a seminary here in Fort Worth, uh, one of the classes that I was assigned um, and actually was very excited to, to teach was a class called Cultural Apologetics. And so I did what any educator would do. First time uh, I was teaching that class, I Googled the phrase Cultural Apologetics. And at the time, there was very little out there. Uh, in fact, there was nothing out there. It's about five or six years ago. Um, and so I basically just grabbed f about seven books that I was interested in that first semester on culture, on the gospel, on apologetics. And then I would teach that same class every year and I would swap out seven different books. And about four or five you know, years into this, I actually started to have something to say to that fundamental question, you know, how does the gospel get a fair hearing? And so, yeah, um, it really just represents the book that I wrote for the sake of my kids and my kids' kids and for the sake of the gospel in this generation and the next. Um, we can talk about specifics, but that's sort of the, the, the genesis <clears throat> of the story and, and why I wrote it. That, thank you, Paul, for that. That um, is quite a story. And I think, uh, you know, in reading your book, I saw my own voice. I was, I've been a Christian. I came, I came to Christ when I was an adult. I was 25. But immediately after a very long, slow, and I can't even determine how long of a process it was. It was a, over a period of months when I finally came to realize the truth of Scripture, um, albeit very ignorantly. Um, I had all kinds of questions immediately. Um, how does the Bible fit us today? I mean, what am I supposed to do with Genesis? What does this say? What is this saying to us today? What is the relevance of this? Why do people still read it? Why do I need to read it? What is this? How could this be God's word? Why is it so big? What what does it speak? How does it speak to us? And so that kind of launched me into um, <clears throat> a lot of different categorical explorations of culture and society as well. So I found uh, in your book, reading it, the, a kindred spirit in terms of the description about how um, how to approach explaining the gospel, because I think that's that's the key issue of trying to make ancient texts. And it's not like we're making or forcing ancient texts to be relevant, but if we read culture properly and we read the text properly, it is relevant. And so that's the what I think is the beauty of your book is it shows the connectivity and it shows the relevance. It's not manufacturing a relevance. It's not trying to be, it's not trying to force the gospel into a cultural shoe. Um, it's showing how the, the culture really does need and comes from uh, the assumption of the gospel truths. So I think that's a, it's a great book there. Could you, as in your experience as a professor of apologetics and, and your experience in, in talking and teaching to students, can you briefly, for a lay audience, outline the basically what apologetics is 
and the various approaches that are in uh, used by Christians today. Okay, great. Yeah, that's it's. I think it's important, especially today in today's day and age when we're largely biblically illiterate and just not always up on these things. It's, it's really helpful to define our terms. And so mm-hmm. apologetics actually has a rich history. It's, it's not a term that's unique to Christianity either. I mean, you could think about Plato's apology all the way back where basically Socrates is defending himself. He's giving an, an apology in the face of charges, uh, you know, that he's corrupting the youth and worshiping false gods, which were actually the charges that were leveled against him in Athens. And so apology, uh, apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which just means giving a defense. And so you, you see that, for example, in 1 Peter 3.15, where, where Peter basically implores all Christians to be always prepared to give a apologia, a defense for the reason, uh, the hope that you have within you. And um, you also see it modeled actually all throughout the Gospels. You see Jesus, which is really interesting. Even Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, um, says things, for example, in I think it's John fourteen eleven, where he says, you know, um, believe in me, but if you don't believe in me, at least believe in me based on the evidence I provide through these miracles, you know? So he's even, he's appealing to uh, our reason and our, and our reason, rational faculties um, to show the reasonableness of his claims. And then of course, in the, in the, in the book of Acts, you see Paul, um, you know, everywhere he goes, he begins in the synagogue and then he spreads out often into the marketplace where he's giving reasons for uh, his belief in the resurrection and the deity of Christ. And so apologetics has a rich history, but it broadly just means giving a defense. Um, In my book, in Cultural Apologetics, I I expand that view, and I actually um, give a definition for cultural apologetics that I claim is kind of its own lane. Let me tell you the definition, and then I'll tell you why I give it its own lane. Um, I say that cultural apologetics is the work of of renewing the Christian voice, the Christian conscience, and the Christian imagination so that the gospel will be viewed as true and satisfying. And the idea here is that as a cultural apologist, that we want to understand and value humans as fully embodied humans, you know, that we have minds, but we have more than minds, right? We have longings and passions and desires. We have an imagination. We have a conscience, all these things. And then I want to enfold that into a proper understanding of what culture is and how we're shaped by culture and how we shape culture. And so the idea is that a cultural apologist works both what I would call upstream and downstream. So upstream, we care about how the gospel is being perceived and received in the, in what we would call the culture shaping institutions of the world. And I have at least three in mind with respect to truth. That would be the university with respect to beauty, that would be the arts, and with respect to goodness, that would be the culture, cultural innovators, the city, and things like that. So that's the upstream worry that a cultural apologist is engaging, and that, of course, requires being wise and strategic and all these things. Um, but then downstream, we're concerned with how is the gospel being received by individuals or groups of individuals within a particular culture? And so we're asking those kinds of questions, too, and we're doing it broader than typically uh, apologetics sometimes is just viewed as what I call in the book rational apologetics. And that's just, you know, the, the a fairly well-walked, and rightly so, plank where you're giving evidence and arguments uh, for the faith to show it, show the reasonableness of the faith. And so I want to expand it and say, not only do we show the reasonableness of our faith, but we show that it's good and beautiful as well. And so I walk the plank of conscience, and then I walk the plank of the imagination and show how they all kind of work together. So that's a little bit of, uh, of what apologetics is, and then how I kind of locate cultural apologetics within that broad uh, category. 
Excellent. Yeah, that's that, that's one thing I noticed about the book immediately is that you you draw your readers in the the just the writing style is inviting enough to where um, you, it, you know you, you very you very much have the academic background, but it's also very translatable. Uh, Lewis C.S. Lewis has an essay called uh, uh, "The Language of Religion," where he he outlines the necessity of being able to translate, and I think that's the biggest um, necessity today in our culture is to be able to translate. And Lewis says, you know, if you can't translate something into a vernacular that everybody can understand, maybe you yourself don't understand it. And so I think I think one of the strengths of your book that I've noticed is your ability to take uh, complex ideas and 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 translate them into a very readable book. It's not a it's not a dry academic endeavor. It's a very readable book. It reads like a story. So on that sense, it's excellent. I I wanted to touch base with you on the idea of the university, where it seems to be a the cultural uh, engine for ideology today, whether it's science, everything you've outlined, science, beauty, arts, the imagination. Um, I think you're aware of uh, C.P. Snow and the two cultures from the mid 20th century, where he noticed, he was a chemist, but he, he noticed that, that, that uh, the departments of universities weren't talking to each other. A physics department had no idea what was going on in the literature department and vice versa. And he said, this was a huge problem and it needed to be rectified. And I think on the university campus, a lot of the things, and you've probably seen this as well, that the students, the, the word university means uni veritas, which is Latin for one truth. But I don't think there would be a student on any secular campus in our culture today, even maybe a Christian campus, that would be able to articulate what is the one truth about the universe, about the university. What's the point or purpose or mission of the school? And if you read a lot of schools' mission statements, very broadly defined, uh, without a lot of great deal of specificity, whereas a lot of the Christian institutions of, of bygone eras were very distinctively founded upon the idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So could you talk briefly about the kind of ways in which you have seen this idea of truth in your university and college experience uh, in the minds of students, how students are perceiving truth, and what is the necessity there for, for reaching not only the students, but but the professors that don't talk to each other. How do you see cultural apologetics being able to address that conundrum? Yeah, that's great. Um, let me let me say make just one comment about the university because I think you you're right. I love just your unpacking. You know, traditionally the university was considered as a whole, where all the disciplines, of course, held together and were tightly connected. And of course, the hub was always theology, and so the the different disciplines were the spokes. Um, and you're right. Largely today, we've lost a vision for what the university is for. In fact, in fact, um, Stanley Fish, who was a real important cultural commentator with respect to education, wrote a book um, a number of years ago now uh, with Oxford University Press called Save the World on Your Own Time. And it was actually written to professors and specifically those like us who are religious or political in some way or had some moral axe to grind. And he basically says in there, and I call it a deflationary view of the university, but he basically says he's trying to pop our bubbles with respect to you know, our purpose and role as educators. And he basically says your job is to just communicate you know, trade skills for whatever discipline you find yourself in. So if you're a writer or if you're an English professor, you know, you teach them grammar. And if you're a philosopher, you teach them... I don't know what Descartes thought in, in, in relation to Aristotle or Hume or something like that. Um, but what he says you cannot be about is, is teaching them values or, you know, religious claims or things like that. He said, if you want to do that, you, you know, do that on your own time, basically. Um, and I call that 
a very deflationary view of the university. But there is another uh, older view. I would want to just call it the traditional view of the university. Um, and, and on the traditional view, what the university was for was the making of humanity itself. And so the idea was that in the university, we're not just creating you know, people that can do a trade, like, you know, uh, parts of things, but we're actually making whole human beings and good human beings. And, and it was, of course, united around the, the idea that our souls were were meant to be nourished on the good, the true and the beautiful. But all that, of course, is, is gone today and, and widely rejected. So with respect to the question of truth, um, I mean, there's just a great video that's out uh, the week that we're sitting here talking by Paul Copen, where uh, for Prager University, where he, he asked this question, you know, is truth relative? And there's all this confusion um, about that. And what's interesting, so I teach philosophy. And in most philosophy uh, departments, no one, th- no one will tell you or teach you that truth is relative because that kind of a position is basically incoherent. It's a logical contradiction. It's very hard, you know, and, and any logical contradiction is necessarily false. So no philosophy department worth its salt would, would teach that. But at the popular level, that is at the cultural level, many people still hold to that view, largely because we're anti-intellectual and this is, you know, it, it fits our tendencies to do whatever we want. And so I do think it's important to um, teach on the nature of truth and to communicate to people that truth is by definition exclusive. You know, if, if it is true that the grass is green, well, then it's false necessarily so that the grass is not green, you know, and those kinds of things. And that's actually a loving posture. Um, and so I, I think it's helpful, especially as Christians, you know, we want to defend the truth, especially in a culture that's so confused about it. We want to, first of all, be clear on what truth is and then um, help them see that there is a true story of the world. And that's kind of how I have couched now a lot of um, a lot of the t- speaking that I do. I'll continue to do and make some of the important distinctions philosophically, but I'll couch it in this question. You know, of all the competing stories out there, we would sometimes Christians use the world world worldview, but of all the competing stories out there, is there one that's true and satisfying? In other words, is is there one that is true to the way the world is, and that's why truth actually matters, that we want our, our lives to be rightly related to reality, but is it also true to the way the world ought to be? And that's the part about we want the true story of the world, you know, it would be great if it also satisfied the deep longings of our heart for goodness and truth and beauty beside. And so that's kind of how I, all, I, I view the university and its relationship to truth. And then, of course, the gospel being the true story of the world. Um, you have on in your book, um, you'd mentioned something about um, teaching the students um, a trade. Um, you know, in, in our day and age, a very technical, specialized society, we have trade schools which just teach uh, what we call vocational or votech schools, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. But they have, they, it, 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 it kind of boils down to this niche specialization where we've separated uh, a practical functionality from value and practical functionality from beautiful. We want something, I think there was a point in your book where you had said something about, you know, even preparing a PowerPoint presentation, we want to consider the aesthetics. We've all seen ugly PowerPoints and have fallen asleep after the first slide. So it's important that you consider the aesthetic aspects of what you're doing. But when you think Votech and pragmatics, you don't think of beauty. You don't think of desire. You're just thinking of functionality. I mean, just look at some of the architecture that we, we inhabit now, just very squared, minimalistic, you know, architecture in terms of uh, the, the neo postmodern uh, functional utility of things. Everything is square and rounded off in glass and steel. But you said on page 99, uh, a quote, you had said that the Western church is captive to pragmatism as products of our culture, our minds have been trained to prefer the pragmatic 
over the beautiful. We seek programs and strategies and policies that produce immediate results. And you, it, 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 it actually fits that the church has taken on the same spirit as the university. Uh, this idea of just being practically minded, give me the bullet points, give me the skills, what's on the test, how many times have you heard that as a professor, what's on the test, just tell me what I need to know to pass the test. Give me the minimal facts, uh, just get me to the point that I need to get to so I can function and do the things that I needed to do. So how do we, how do you see being able to reintegrate, reimagine, or re-enchant our minds, as you say, you use the word enchantment and re-enchanting in the book. How do we get off this pragmatic train uh, and and show people that beauty and truth and functionality all go together, but in a world that seems that when you're pragmatically focused, it doesn't seem like beauty matters at all. I have no time for that. There's no place for aesthetics when I'm trying to be practical. So how do we, how do you see um, you mentioned the gospel, of course, and that's what we want to do, making the gospel, not forcing the gospel to be attractive in some shtick kind of way, but but showing the beauty of the gospel in, in a very meaningful way. So how do we get off the pragmatic rails and bring beauty back into the things that we do in our daily lives? How do you see that? I, I would also add my favorite um, student comment, you know, after being gone for a day, hey, did we do anything important yesterday? That's always a favorite. Now nah, we just wasted time. You weren't here, you know, because uh, it's all about you, right? So, um, yeah, okay, great question about beauty. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the thing I would want to say is that we need to have a robust and we need to recapture a robust theology of beauty, I think, if we want to learn how to integrate it and push back against pragmatism. And I guess what I mean by that is I, I always love... Um, St. Augustine, who was a, a fourth century um, church father, and he wrote a book called uh, The Confessions. And in there, um, he said this about God. He said, you are the beauty of all beautiful things. And then he said, you are the good of all good things. And I would just add the truth in which all true things point. And I think that that, that is really helpful because what it reminds us of is that, that God is a source of beauty, right? And so we own beauty as Christians. Um, it should not be an exile in the church. You know, largely it's an exile was part, one of the claims I was making, except we, we value beauty maybe with respect to hymns and auditory beauty. But when you look in these multi-purpose um, environments, you know, um, it's very functional, as you, as you mentioned. And so I think what we want to do is we want to see, have a theology of beauty that connects it all to God. And then we, we want to understand in doing that, we're going to begin to understand the role of beauty in our lives. Um, you know, I talk about how beauty, uh, well, Plato talked about how beauty evokes desire. Um, the way that I, the language that I use is that beauty calls. Um, in fact, the Greek word in the New Testament for beauty is kalen, K-A-L-E-N, which means to call. And so there's this kind of communication that's taking place with beauty. And what is it calling us to do? Well, it's setting us on a quest because beauty evokes something, right? It's setting, setting us on a quest for the source of beauty itself, which is God. Um, and that, so that would be the first thing. The second thing I'd want to say is this is something really interesting. If you look at the empirical evidence coming from science, there's been all these studies on what are the markers of happiness, you know, what makes a flourishing life, what makes a happy life. And there's the traditional seven that, that sociologists will look to, things like material wealth, 
um, you know, successful careers and kind of the, the, the ones that we would normally expect. What's interesting, though, the, the primary marker that makes for a happy life is the presence of beauty. This is what the science is revealing. And I think that's something that's very important. You know, I, I was thinking about, um, for example, you, maybe you've heard of uh, the Landfill Harmonic. There's a, there's a documentary you can watch on Netflix about this group of kids and their families that literally live in a landfill, in a garbage dump in, um, I think it's uh, Paraguay. And um, one person had a vision for turning the, the trash into instruments. And so he began to take the, the pieces of trash, like spoons and, and you know, barrels, and, and make cellos and, and violins. And eventually students began to play music and, and eventually became an orchestra. And what happened was, surrounded by beauty, this community began to flourish. And these, these lives of these students began to take on a whole new deeper meaning um, as beauty was entered back into their lives. And so I think... I think that, you know, we atrophy because beauty, we've been made, like I said earlier, to be nourished on goodness, truth, and beauty. And it's just part of how God has made us. It's a deep longing of the human heart. And so, yeah, bottom line is we've got to recapture it um, for the sake of flourishing and for the sake of the gospel, because ultimately, what is the gospel? It's the the beautiful, the best, the the the, you know the story um, that connects at the deepest level with the with the longings of the human heart, and that's beautiful. And of course, it connects us to a beautiful God as well. Um, you mentioned Paul it, in your book a couple of places about um, music uh, as being one form of what is beautiful, uh, and you you talked briefly about uh, a sort of a Renaissance in Japan where people hear Bach cantatas uh, and are coming to explore Christianity because of just from hearing Bach music. And then you have a, a wonderful uh, mention of Dmitry Shostakovich mm. performing, uh, writing music as Leningrad is being sieged. And uh, I think you'd, you'd also mentioned a, a violin player in the trenches of World War One or World War Two who's who was playing a, a violin. Uh, and then there's the uh, iconic story of the, of the, uh, Quintet or the the trio on the Titanic as they were playing uh, nearer my God to Thee I think it was um, as the Titanic sank uh, and so in the presence of of this what seems to be disastrous situations you have this wonderful beautiful uh, arrangement of music how did you briefly how did you come to uh, incorporate those how did you catch those stories. Well, I think I was, I, I first was, uh, you know, wrestling with uh, what is the role, what is the function of music and reading uh, the book that you referenced there. I read a book um, by M.T. Anderson, I think is his name. And the book is called The City for the Symphony of the Dead. And it was actually a book that my kids were reading. It's a young adult um, nonfiction. And um, in there, though, Dmitry Shostakovich is this composer who's literally composing a symphony as bombs are dropping, you know, the Germans, I guess it's World War II, the Germans are dropping bombs and, and the siege of Leningrad has begun. And in reading that, though, what I, what I was struck with was the people that survived during a horrific period in the, the history of that city were the ones who came together and did so in the name of aesthetic goodness and beauty. Um, and there's a, there's a, a part in that story that was so, um, showed that the transport, like the showed the, the power of beauty. Um, it was actually a, a moment of a bomb raid where um, somebody was writing in their diary how an old man stands up during, you know, bombs are flying all around. This old man stands up and begins to play his violin. And in her diary, she says, at that moment, we are transported to another place. And this is the role of beauty in our lives, that it transports us. And, you know, all she says, all was well. And, and what's interesting, outside, you know, there's death and, and bombs and destruction. But for a brief moment, beauty transported them. And of course, the harmony 
found within transported them. And theologically, there's something really important going on there. And I'll just say this because it's so interesting. Um, well, I'll say two things, actually, because I, I think you want to talk about the story of the cosmos. Um, Aquinas, he, he defines beautiful things. He gives, he gives three criteria. And he says that beautiful things are things that are um, whole, that they have the right proportions, and they have a kind of radiance. Um, so they're whole, you know, they're not missing any part. They're proportional so that everything fits together in the right way. Um, and when you have wholeness, you have rest and you have, and then when you have proportionality, you have joy and community. And then when you have radiance, you have, this is kind of the idea of beauty calling. Um, you know, it bids us, it transports us, it takes us to another place. So here's the connection to uh, story of the cosmos, which is so interesting. Um, I think it was Boethius, again, an ancient church father, philosopher, who talked about three kinds of music um, that there are. There's number one, there's music in, through instruments. So like we were just talking about in the harmony that we find there. Secondly, though, there's a kind of music to a human life lived well. So a virtuous life is a life of harmony. It's a life um, lived under the banner of Christ the way things ought to be. And then thirdly, he talked about a kind of music of the heavens. There's a kind of heavenly symphony or harmony that's taking place out there. Um, you know, there's a fittingness. There's a harmony to the world, too. And, of course, we, that was part of the motivation for the story of the Cosmos book, um, Thinking, and as I did the research for the cultural apologetics book, and, and this question, how do we re-enchant the world? How do we help people to see the world the way that it actually is? And then you begin to think about, well, what is the world like? And you begin to look to that more enchanted age, you know, the, the day gone by prior to the Enlightenment, and everybody saw the, the harmony and the fit and the beauty of the world and it did something to them. It moved them, and it caused them to praise God. And so that's um, that's what is so interesting. You know, you begin with music, and you end with these deep thoughts about who God is and the world that he has made. So it's pretty cool. Yes. So the story of the cosmos is obviously what we want to talk about as well, because that is our project. Um, and what's funny or interesting or timely or coincidental is that uh, we met uh, as you were writing cultural apologetics. It was in draft form, I think, when, when I came to the seminary with my idea. Um, I have been telling people about the event at the seminary. I have not actually heard <laughs> your story, how you tell it, about how this book came together uh, from your perspective, because you were, a, you were working at the seminary at the time. I was just a walk-off schmo that came onto the campus, was looking for an auditorium to host this event, and uh, you invited me to the seminary for coffee, and were quite taken by the idea and even kind of surprised me how interested you were in the idea. So why don't you just give us a little bit of background about from your perspective about um, where the story, the event that birthed the story of the cosmos in relation to the beauty we've been talking about. I think it was the first, you had me at the first email you sent me because I think you said, I too am a CS Lewis fan. And so that was all it took actually. Um, oh, tell me more. And so anyway, so I think when you initially sent an email, um, you know, I was writing the cultural apologetics book. Um, what was so fun about writing that book was, um, I think Lewis and Tolkien too, um, they unlocked some things for me in terms of understanding and seeing how there's this ancient way of viewing the world that, uh, you know, the, the language that the 
the ancients would use is that the world was a sacrament. It was a sacramental view of the world, um, that everything pointed to the divine and actually it was a sign of the divine and it was enchanted or encharged with the divine and things like that. And so Lewis and Tolkien helped uh, me understand that. And so when you said that and when you proposed, you know, uh, I I forget what what you initially proposed, but something about astrophysics, which I'm really interested in the science part, but then, and fantasy. I mean, yeah, you had me at, you had me at hello. Um, And then from there, uh, yeah, the event, which I think we called it Astrophysics and Fantasy, I believe, was just a fantastic event. We had, as you know, Dan, we had the Hubble uh, astronomer there that walked us through this just awe-inspiring story of the, of the cosmos and kind of and things like that. And then we had Michael Ward, who again is a great Oxford uh, Lewis scholar who is un- unpacking C.S. Lewis's view of the heavens. And and it just became very clear thinking about that that this is a book. This is something that people need to see. And I'm so glad that we did it because you know as we work to to recapture the ancient view of the world, which I think obviously as Lewis would of course put it too, there's a lot that needed to go, right? We don't think that there's a nymph behind every tree or river as Lewis put it, but, but there's something about that sacramental view that needed to, that we need to recapture. And that was the, that was the interesting blend of fantasy and astrophysics that I found so alluring. Um, and of course, you know, some of our great fantasy authors, they're not the only two, but uh, you know, we think of Tolkien and then of course, Lewis with his science fiction trilogy and things like that. So that's, I guess, from my perspective, uh, how it all began. Yes, it, it was Wonderful. I mean, we we worked uh, quite a while on that. We ended up having over quite over a little bit over two hundred people there. We had families, we had kids, we had moms and dads, we had grandpas, we had people come from out of state. Uh, and I remember at one time getting up and looking at everybody watching the presentation of the Hubble, and it was like they were in the, the best part of a movie. There was pin drop silent in the auditorium when Anton was talking, and it really it really was exciting. It you, it was one of those goosebump thing kind of things, and. You had to be there to experience it. But from the book, we were actually able to, and this is what I'm so excited about, Paul, is because I think it, you know, without actually having ever met you before, uh, this this did turn out to be exactly the sort of topic that you were talking about in terms of cultural apologetics. And what I what I like about it is the the unific the attempt at the unifying a unification of, of, of different disciplines and different Christian denominations so that we, we have a multifaceted approach to understanding the cosmos that shows this universal influence of the heavens um, from art. Uh, Terry Gillespie, of course, with his chapter. Um, we have Michael Ward and Holly Ordway talking about the imaginative, uh, the imaginations of Lewis and Tolkien. In addition to good science, and you have a chapter on the philosophical implications of a created cosmos. We have gone back to a very ancient way of considering the cosmos, a holistic, interdisciplinary, connected sort of understanding of the cosmos. And like a good symphony, like a Bach symphony or like a Shostakovich symphony or a violin player in the middle of a trench in World War One or Two, the heavens give us pause to meditate and to consider another world. We are transported when we see them. It's it's regular, it's fixed, it's beautiful. It truly is what David says in Psalm 8. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the sun and the moon, the, 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 the moon and the stars that you have created. What is man that you're mindful of him? And so with this book, it, it gives us not only the ability to contemplate the heavens, but contemplate our purpose in the heavens. Why am I here? Those, those bigger questions. What do you find to be, as you've been talking about it, what do you find to be uh, one of the, one of the things about the book that you like the most and, uh, and, and what, what are you most pleased with about how we've 
put this together? Yeah, that's a great question. I was talking to somebody uh, about this early uh, earlier, but um, so, you know, <clears throat> when the book comes out, as often as the case, or you do a number of radio interviews. I know you and I have both done some. And so, uh, you know, we, we worked on the book and then you kind of forget about it because it goes to the publisher and it goes to print and it takes about six to eight months. And so uh, about a month ago, I actually sat down to read the book for really the first time from cover to cover. I had read individual chapters as they came in, but I had never actually sat down and read the book from front to cover. And what was so interesting, so this was about a month ago, it would be the summer of 2019. Um, what was so interesting reading it from cover to cover, it actually convicted me, you know, um, that here I am a philosopher, right? I love to I love to play with propositions. I spend my time professionally working with propositions and syllogisms and things like that. But it convicted me. Um, we, we were up in northern Wisconsin on vacation, and I was kayaking on this beautiful lake, and I was actually staring at a uh, lily pad, and, and I was meditating on Psalm 27, verse 4, which, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, Dan, where David is speaking, and he says, you know, there's one thing I desire, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze upon the beauty in his temple. And I was thinking about that, and then I was thinking, because I've been reading just a, a lot of theologians who talk about the heavens as God's cosmic temple. I'm like, wait a minute, this is staring at that lily now. I'm like, this is part and connecting it to beauty, you know, this, you know, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And I was thinking about Lewis again, who's been so helpful, where he talks about in the weight of glory that, you know, it's not the beauty in the book or in the song, but it's the beauty that we, that we want through that. We want the source through that, that we really long for. And it's like, okay, wait, all of these things, these are all part of God's cosmic temple. And and the beauty is, you know, that we're enjoying uh, the goodness and the beauty of the God who is the giver of all things. So it kind of convicted me that I need to um, get some hobbies, actually, like learn about birds or learn about the stars, you know, or and not just learn about them. But like I took your advice that you say in the appendix and I actually went and got that Stellarium app. And now I can pick out you'd be proud of me, Dad. I, I can pick out Jupiter right now and, and Terry's that are next to it. And a few other stars, um, but you know, like have a little, like get into the the, the dirt of creation. Um, and so that was one of my, just speaking personally, a reaction. I was also struck with, uh, like you said, the coherence of it um, from black hole experts to meteorite expert, experts working out of you know the Vatican to. Um, uh, fine-tuning experts from Australia to literary theorists from Oxford and Houston Baptist to little philosophers like me to, you know, uh, lay astronomers, all but the coherence of the story. Um, what, what also struck me is just about every chapter, and we didn't coordinate this, um, not everyone, but just about everyone referenced Psalm 19, verse 1, or, one and 2, or, or, you know, the, the 1 through 4. Uh, and that was, that was a neat theme to to see thread through there, even though the subtitle is that you know the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, people really were connecting the thing that they studied and the joy of discovery to um, you know God's divine uh, gift to them. And so, yeah, that those are some of the things that have been um, God's been doing in my own heart as I read our book for the first time as a book. So yeah, the Stellarium app is great. Um, it was not, I, I clarify to people that was not a, an endorsement of any kind. It's just an app that I used uh, and enjoyed and and really have learned all my star names. So so now the next thing is, uh, so star names. I'm telling my friend Sarah, I'm challenging her with star names, learning or I'm, I'm trying to get her to remember the stars in the Big Dipper. Um, but it's really fun. It's a lot of fun to go out uh, just a couple of nights ago, just a couple of mornings ago, uh, the Perseid meteor shower had peaked. 
And I went out about five o'clock with a chair and sat in my backyard and watched the Perseids, the meteors. I, in about 20 minutes, I saw 20 Perseids. And, uh, but like yourself, I became over the last, especially more when we were working on the book, I became more diligent to at least memorize constellations and at least a handful of stars. And, and now I can add to that. And it's, it's a lot of fun too. And Michael Ward talks about this in his chapter in the book. He talks about the necessity of, or, or how we're satisfied with just images of nature as the encounter rather than actually having the encounter with nature with the lily pad uh we we see pictures of half dome or pictures of the milky way or pictures of these things but we don't actually go out there and have the incarnate in person one-on-one experience with 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 other people we are facilitating our relationships through screens a lot now uh and, and with nature as well that that a lot of the audio visual that we have even um is uh is remarkably non-incarnate. We don't have those personal encounters. So I think, I think you're right. Uh, and I'm glad to see it. You know, here we are taking our own medicine. We go out and we're not just sitting here talking about these things. We are going out there and encountering these things as well. But it's so hard now with people that live in huge urban areas to get out from underneath the urban sprawl because you can only see a handful of stars. It's not a very impressive sight. But when you get out into dark skies, it's it's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. So... This really has been an uh, an effort to try to reorient people toward um, beauty, I think. And I really like that aspect about your book. Um, so in wrapping up here, what would you tell somebody who would be interested in pursuing apologetics, um, just beginning? Where do you begin? And how do you what would you recommend going forward? Because a lot of times I know for me, when I got into apologetics, I started listening to Ken Myers, Mars Hill audio uh, many, many years ago. There were so many different topics because apologetics can be so broad and all encompassing. You're talking about biblical criticism, history, philosophy, and science, all of the things that we've mentioned. How does the, a lay person become a well-informed generalist? How do you take those steps to be able to, Speak intelligently without having to be an expert, because that seems to be the thing that we need to do more of, is to be able to speak generally and intelligently about a lot of different subjects. How would you encourage people to start becoming well-informed generalists? Okay, this is a great question. I'll try not to get on my soapbox. Um, But I mean, yeah, so because part of the problem we have as Christians and evangelicals in the West is that we're largely anti-intellectual, and we don't um, own the intellectual part of our faith, the way that historically we have and the way that scripture calls us to, you know, Jesus with the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Um, so we must embrace the truth that as an, as an apprentice of Jesus Christ, part of our job is to be like Christ. And I would argue as Dallas Willard taught us long ago that Jesus is the smartest person and that we follow in his steps. And so we would be uh, men and women that are learners and as disciples that we would study. Um, so in terms of where to start, I mean, you know, start with my book, Cultural Apologetics. That, that's, that would be a good book. But I would say two things. Um, you could start there, but you could, um, I would start with, I would say two things. Get a general book that covers the spectrum of questions that are typically covered or asked in apologetics. Um, I'm thinking of William Lane Craig and On Guard, which is a bottom his basically his bottom shelf which is still hard um writing and then he has a more intermediate and it is hard called reasonable faith um i myself have written a book like that along with two of my colleagues and friends uh, travis dickinson and keith lofton called stand firm which covers the basic 
questions on Jesus, God, evil, um, you know, the question of other religions and so on. So get some book like that that introduces you, Frank Turek, John Lennox, Ravi Zacharias. But then from there, the second thing I would want to say is just start reading. Read where you're interested. If you're interested in, you know, uh, the question of Jesus or the question of scripture, the question of science, uh, the you know, any philosophy, uh, moral arguments, whatever it is, just just start there. Um, I was struck as we're this week, you know, there's been all the Internet's been abuzz with all these deconversion stories where uh, these prominent Christian leaders are basically saying they no longer believe and they're walking away. And one of those was a worship leader. And at least the initial uh, I mean, the story is kind of morphing, but the initial uh, social media viral you know, thread that was p- trending, he basically said, um, you know, no one's asking these deep questions about hell and, and, and the Bible contradictions. And those of us who are involved in apologetics are like, are you serious? A 30 second Google search or picking up any of 100 books would show you that there's been incredibly rich thinking for, for the last 2000 years on these questions. And so big idea. Um, don't be intellectually lazy, and then just get connected with the, the rich stream of Christian thought um, in apologetics and th- theology and philosophy, a theology of beauty, all of these things. Um, this is what I tell students, but I, I guess you could really say this to anybody. I, as I'm talking to high school students, um, I often say there's nothing that you're going to hear in your physics class or your sociology class or your English class or your chemistry class or biology that Christianity can't handle, right? Mm-hmm. Because truth is on our side, and every truth discovered somehow illuminates and points back to the divine. And so, so we might, I might, as an apologist, I, or even as a, as a philosopher, I don't always know the answer to people's questions. But that doesn't mean that there isn't an answer, and that doesn't mean that there haven't been people uh, who have thought deeply and biblically about these questions. So I would just encourage you, I mean, there's, so I did get on a soapbox, soapbox but just start where you're at and pick up a book and... Uh, you know, do it, do it with friends and see where it goes. Well, thank you, Paul, for your time. It's been a delight. We've been trying to get together for, well, ever since we got the book out, trying to, (laughs) trying to do a podcast together. Uh, we finally did it. Um, but yeah, I think what we're, what we kind of have here is a, is a, in microcosm form, we have a compendium of, of the two books. We have the two books that are classically understood in, in the Christian tradition of nature and of scripture. And so you you develop the, as you say in your book, um, the, Jesus's commandment, and I think it's Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, of course, love your neighbor as yourself. So there's a, there's a full-on incarnate engagement with creation. It's not just uh, reading books and abstracts that has a point, but... You know, you can get into discussions about the universe with the Kalam cosmological argument, but you also need to understand and experience the universe on the top of Half Dome in Yosemite or out in the New Mexican desert or somewhere in Arizona or see the dark skies in the Grand Canyon. Uh, so there's there's several different ways to do it, but you have to be incarnately engaged, I think, both with the mind and with the body, with the whole person engaging creation that way. So it's one of the one of the ways in which we see beauty is is being there in and amidst the beauty, as you say, with the lily, but even with something like a lily pad, it is God's creation and God's temple. Uh, so I just want to conclude with this, and then you can wrap up with your final thoughts. In the book of Colossians, uh, Paul tells us that for by him, that is Jesus, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, or on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And as Paul told the Athenians in him, 
we live and move and have our being. And so we are privileged and blessed to be a part of creation, a part of God's creation for this specific time and this exciting day and age. And in all the chaos that's going on around us, I think for me, meditating on creation helps me to meditate on God's promises and his faithfulness to me as well. So any concluding thoughts? And we'll wrap up. Thanks again for your time, Paul. Yeah, no, I think uh, your scripture there was a great concluding thought. Just uh, just to encourage your listeners um, that, you know, the more that I've studied, the more that I've read deeply in the Gospels, the more that I've walked with Jesus, uh, the more that I am convinced that there is a story that's alive and there is a story that understands us and there is a story that's true. Um, and not just true but to the way things are, but true to the way the world ought to be that satisfies every longing of the human heart. And of course, that's the gospel story. And so this is truly the good news, as we call it. And so, yeah, just encourage you um, and your listeners here that all of life, everything that we have is gift. And that's what's so great about that Colossians passage. Everything that we have is a gift. And so our job as creatures is to enjoy it in creaturely response, as Lewis would say, um, and to receive the happiness that God gives. And that is, you know, that's the great joy of being creature, that, that we um, are people who, are, who image another, we live for another, and in doing so we find our identity, we find our meaning, and we find our purpose, and of course we find joy and delight as well. So thanks for the time, uh, Dan, and it was great uh, talking to you today.